Well, good morning uh, again. I am James Henry, the pastor at St. James. Uh, this past week, for the first time in uh, remembered history, perhaps ever in history, uh, the clergy of the Virginia Annual Conference met virtually uh, to carry out the business of clergy, which is to elect people to become members of the clergy and some other kinds of things, and then to set the appointments. You should know that, at, uh, that unless something radically changes, the bishop has indeed sent me back for what will be my 29th year at uh, St. James. 28 years ago, around this time, Linda and I were moving into the parsonage for St. James United Methodist Church, which was located in a whole different place. Uh, not the parsonage, but the St. James United Methodist Church building. Um, and a lot has happened over those 28 years. So I'm coming back for the 29th year. Now, as I look back on my story, uh, each week I try to begin in a place that sets up, uh, uh, that sets up the message. If you've been around for all 28 of those years, and nobody actually has except for Linda, and she wasn't there for all the years because she was serving another church herself uh, at the time, you know that sometimes you'll hear a story again. It's just a part of being alive. Um, in the 80s, in the early 80s, 1981, I went off to the University of Virginia, graduated from high school, went off to the University of Virginia for my first year. I had lived what I now look at as a relatively sheltered life. Gone to church my whole life, every Sunday in Sunday school, had learned the Sunday school stories. Uh, which did not include Job, by the way. Not exactly sure how we skipped over Job, but Job was not, uh, and we had a very anesth you know, very cleaned up version of Noah's Ark too. But that's a side issue altogether for children's Sunday school. Um, in my first year, I thought I was going in one direction, and by the summer after my first year, I determined that I was called I, I answered the call that I had felt when I was 14 to go in the direction of ministry. So I decided I would take in that fall semester intro to New Testament uh, in a public university, not a Bible college, in a public university uh, from Mr. Harry Gamble, who was my uh, professor. Uh, he began teaching me things about the New Testament that did not make sense to my Sunday school learning at all. Not, not even close. Not even vaguely close. So I did that thing that I think human beings tend to do. If you can't find a way to fit it into what you know and what you believe to be true in your mind, you uh, learn it enough so that you can regurgitate it for tests. If somebody asks you, you're prepared. But it's not something that you accommodate into your other view of the world. You assume, as I did at the time, and behind poor Mr. Gamble's back called him Harry the Heretic, uh, you know, uh, I assumed that he just didn't know the Bible as well as I did. <laughs> you know the arrogance of youth. 19-year-old James was sure he knew better. Um, 
It's very hard to know what to do with contradictions in life. Uh, the simplest and what is our current way of dealing with contradictions in life for most of us is we silo ourselves. We find people who believe exactly the same thing as we do and we hang out with them because it makes our lives easier. Nobody's gonna say, hold on a second, you can't say that about black people. That's wrong. Or you can't say that about God. Or you can't say that about the president. Or whoever it happens to be, you hang out with the silo and you make pronouncements together and everybody pats each other on the back. And that's uh, very easy. Until the contradictions actually enter your life, until they become your own struggles, and sometimes your own suffering. Now, suffering can be a terrible thing, uh, as bad as the story of Job would tell us. But suffering is any time life hands you something you don't expect, you aren't prepared for. So at the very lowest level, when you get up one morning and the governor closes your state and tells you, you, you know, stay at home, um, you weren't prepared for that. And you consider that to be suffering. Uh, and in some ways it is for you because it's not what you expected life to give you. So enter into that the story of Job. Now today is really more of an introduction to Job and also the question that Job's going to pose for us for the next four weeks. So I just want to read a bit of Job for you. We're not going to read the entire first chapters. That is your assignment, actually, this week. I want you to read the first two chapters of the book of Job. I don't have a Bible, James. BibleGateway.com, baby. Go online. It, you, you can read... Job 1 and 2. And I'm not talking about verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. I'm talking chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, because I think it's an interesting read. There are some things that we're going to pick up on that uh, we didn't before. So here we go. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it's too long. I'm just going to read portions of it to you. You can read the rest for yourself. Job chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So far, so good. There were born to him seven sons, a perfect number, by the way, perfect number of sons, seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people in the East. His sons used to go and hold feasts for one another in, in one another's houses in turn, and they would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them too. Isn't that nice? And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And that's what Job always did. So they got together for everybody's birthday. I used to think that meant that they got together every, you know, they like had a party at everybody's house every, every night. It wasn't. Uh, it really is much better, you know, on their day. And their day is their birthday, the day they celebrate being alive. And so they would gather at each other's house. 
So they went for 10 birthdays a year. 10 birthdays, different people's houses. Well, maybe seven birthdays. I don't know. Doesn't tell us whether they got invited to the daughter's houses and their birthdays or not. Not so clear. So that's pretty much what's happened so far. We know that Job is an upright man. He does what he's supposed to do. He follows. And he wants to be sure his children even stay in it. So just in case they're not uh, paying attention to all the right rules and regulations, he does an offering for them, too. It covers them up. It covers them. Now, this is the earthly scene we get set. Now, back and forth in the first two chapters, there are three... There are three earthly scenes and two heavenly scenes. And so uh, we get to a heavenly scene. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, these aren't angels. This is not angels as we understand it. What, what, what was understood in this story, essentially, is that God had a council of heavenly beings, and they came to chat with God about God's plans for all of the world, the universe, everything was going on, whatever, they came. One of the people on, or one of the beings on, his, uh, on God's counsel was the accuser. Now, in your Bible, when you read it, in virtually every version, it's going to capitalize and say the word Satan. It's actually Hashatan. And Hashatan means the accuser. It means the adversary. There was no developed sense in Hebrew writings a thousand years before Jesus uh, of this guy, demonic with a pointed fork and tail and that kind of thing. It was just someone who worked for God and whose job we're about to find out, the accuser or the adversary. Uh, and the accuser came among them. The Lord said to the accuser, where have you come from? Now, this is, a, this is really kind of a loose way of saying, have you been doing your job? Accusing and uh, adver you know, being adverse. Have you done that? And uh, the accuser answered the Lord, from going to and from on the earth, to and fro on the earth, and from walking uh, up and down on it. Then the Lord said to the accuser, Have you seen my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The accuser answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence or hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to the accuser, very well, all that he has is in your power. Just don't touch him. So the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord. This is an intriguing setup. The accuser is working for God comes up and the question of Job is really boils down to this. Why do we love God? Is it a transaction that exists between us and God? Is it a transaction? Think about it. As a child, I came to church every Sunday because it was more habit and because mom and dad didn't allow me to do anything else. 
So we were in church every Sunday, and that meant Sunday school every Sunday, and every once in a while we would skip worship, but not after I was confirmed, never skipped worship after that. We were there every Sunday, most of that. And at some point along there, I came to understand that there was this wonderful transaction that existed between me and God. I say yes to God, God grants my ticket into heaven forever. Now, I ask the question of myself, even now, did I love God then or did I love God because God gave me heaven? Did I love God because God could do something for me? How many friends do we have in life that are not really friends, they're acquaintances that can do something for us? And we cultivate the relationship with them because they can do something for us. We don't necessarily love them for them. We put up with them because when we need a ticket to that insider event, they can get us one. How many of those kinds of relationships do we tolerate in life? And do we just tolerate our relationship with God because it's a wonderful transaction? Look at what we get. What do they, show us what they get, Bob. <laughs> they get eternity hanging out on golden streets with pearly gates and huge sumptuous feasts. Never mind that you're going to be hanging out with some people that on earth you would never have been caught dead with. <laughs> and they're at the feast too. We, we put that out of our mind. Is it a transaction? And this is what the accuser is asking. This is what the whole book is asking. Why do you love God? Do you love God for what God can do for you? What about if things go wrong? Where is God in all of that? What about if a pandemic comes on the land and suddenly you lose your job and you're in danger of losing the ability to feed your family and you're in danger of uh, of losing the place that you live and going out on the street. What if like some nursing homes are doing right now, you know, because some older people aren't able to pay and because they might have COVID-19, they're kicking them out, evicting them. What about that? You know, as long as you can pay the cash, you're welcome here. If you can't pay the cash, what does that say about the economy? Maybe we should ask some questions about that too, but that's a side issue for another time. Do we love someone for what they can do for us? Or do we love someone for who they are? And it is the accuser's uh, rhetorical question that asks the question throughout the entire book. Does Job love God for God? Or does Job love God? Because, of course, you've put a hedge around him. You've protected him. You've given him everything. The perfect number of sons... Well, three daughters too, and, you know, 7,000 goats and sheep and all sorts of servants and everything he could possibly want. He's got it all. Of course he loves you, God. The transaction's working in his favor. Sometimes I wonder if, an, if that isn't... Now, if it's, the, if it's the way we get people in the door sometimes, it seems like a little bait and switch. It's just a transaction. We'll rubber stamp everything. We'll bind you. And what we bind on earth is bound in heaven so you can slide on in. Is that what it's about? Do we love God for God or do we love God for what God can do? So essentially, they have this conversation in the story and God says, okay, do your worst. Just don't touch Job. So the next chapter, is, the next section is, is terrible. 
That's why, you know, I am among those people who say this is a great and powerful parable. But I struggle with this being, God to be that cavalier with the lives of seven of, you know, ten of God's children. Started to say seven of God's children plus three girls. You know, uh, you know, I'm getting a look from all the women in the room. I was trying, and some of you online too, probably, and rightfully so. You know, it just seems kind of cavalier of God. Sure, just wipe out all that Job's got, and uh, including his children, and leave him destitute. That's fine. That just doesn't sound like the God I know. I just don't think God tests us that way. Things like that happen. And maybe afterwards you think this was a test. But did God send the test or not? I can't answer that for you. But that's one of the things that you have to struggle with yourself. There are a lot of questions that happen in the first two chapters of Job. We can rush through it if we want to. But some of those questions are worth asking for yourself. What do you think about your relationship with God? Is it the transaction you're looking for? Is it, is it a love for love's sake? Is it a love for just being God, or is it a love because it gets you a heaven ticket and some cool friends that you get to hang out with on Sunday morning? And, you know, or other times, at least when we eventually get to hang out together again, I don't know when that'll actually be. Is that what it's about? So the catastrophe falls. Job refuses to curse God even then. So, sometime later, the heavenly council gets called again. Read it, it's in there. They get, they get back together, they're all sitting around, and the same question arises. It's like it's a repeat. What you been doing, the accuser? I'm wandering around to and fro. Have you seen my servant Job? He didn't even curse me when you did all those things to him. And the accuser says, Oh, well, it's easy if it's somebody else's stuff, if it's stuff, if it's not you. What about if something bad happens to him personally? What's going to happen then? So, God says, all right, give it a shot. And so, the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, Job took a pot shirt, a pot shirt uh, which he found because he goes and sits in the garbage heap outside of the city. He finds a broken pot shirt and uses it to scratch his itchiness and sat among the ashes. Um, he still refuses to curse God, although it's, it's essentially the same. It says, and Job refused to curse God with his lips. He wouldn't curse God, but he wished he hadn't been born. He wished he hadn't been born. Now, I'm not sure that that's not the same thing as cursing God, because God chose to bring him into the world. I don't think it is. He refuses still to curse God. Now, you just need to know the whole rest of the book, until we get to the epilogue, is going to be conversations of three friends who show up to talk to him. For me, the question becomes, what do we do when bad things happen to us? What do we do when the unexpected comes? What do we do when we're struggling 
and suffering. Now, Job never stops talking to God. I don't want to give too much away over the next four weeks. But Job never stops talking to God. Job's friends never stop talking about God. There's a difference between talking about God and talking to God. We'll see that over the weeks to come. So what can we learn about this? Bad things happen to people, even righteous people. And that sets us up to ask the question of ourselves, when the bad things happen, are we going to go into our silos with people who agree with us and say, this is all because of them. Let's blame somebody, whoever the them is. It's all, you know, what have I done against God? Where have I gone wrong? I mean, these are the kinds of questions. Do you love God for God's sake? Or do you love God as a transaction to punch your ticket? Because I believe what God hopes for us is that life will be transformational for us, not transactional. It won't be that we just do a tit for tat. God's good to me. I'll be good back to God. You know, I'm... Good to Linda, Linda's going to be good back to me. Because God's going to be good and loving to you, period. At least that's my understanding of the biblical message. doesn't appear so in, in, in Job. <laughs> it doesn't appear so with Job. Do you think God is a retributive kind of God? Do you think that God is, is, is so cavalier that God would just let all of your family be killed off except for your wife? And then send you three friends, like Job's friends, to come and sit with you. Is that who you think God is? And if that's a God, then I'm not sure it's a good transaction for you. <laughs> uh, it's a tough transaction. If it's all about what you get out of the relationship, it's no different than any other job you might have. You do for me, I'll do for you. I think that this book of Job is going to invite us over the next four weeks to ask ourselves, what is this relationship with God really all about? What is it doing in me? What is it doing? Am I keeping asking the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Or am I really abandoning myself to the eternal God who loves me, even in the midst of these contradictions? We're going to see that Job seems to struggle throughout, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. People are going to try to tell him who he's supposed to be. Those voices are probably going to sound just like he would have sounded before everything bad happened to him. Because, you know, before, uh, before things start to get disorderly, we have every answer we need to have, and we are quick to give it to everybody else. Before we've ever suffered ourselves, we assume you're suffering because you must have done something wrong. It's you. What did you do to tick God off that let you suffer? Is that the God that you know? Do you believe it's truly a tit for tat while you're alive? 
Do you believe there's something more? Because for me, I do. I believe that in my moments of suffering, in my moments of struggle, it's just like Richard said in, in uh, the little section I read to you today about contradictions. Moments of contradictions offer us a choice to grow deeper or to avoid the mystery altogether. Job is going to continue to talk to God. Sometimes we're very busy talking about God. What I think the book of Job is going to invite us to do over the next four weeks is to know God more and to stop worrying so much about what we know about God as we enter ever deeper into a relationship that is infinite and beautiful and filled with love. But sometimes it takes a while <laughs> and a long journey. And that's what we're going to look at for the next two weeks, the next four weeks. So I encourage you this week, first of all, to read the first two chapters of Job for yourself. In whatever version you want to, it doesn't matter to me. And I want you to ask the question that the book of Job seems to ask. Do I love God because of what God can do for me? Or do I love God because God is God? And let me tell you, most of my life, I'm pretty sure I loved God for what God could do for me. I was pretty sure God was doing great things for me, and I was on for the ride. It was when things didn't go my way, and I wondered, what did I do to make God mad? <laughs> Why doesn't God give me what I'm due? <laughs> which is good stuff, because I've been such a good guy. I mean, these are the questions worth asking. And you're not going to find a better companion to ask those questions with than Job. Job's life is turned upside down over the next 42 chapters. Upside down. And he comes out on the far side. And we'll see where that happens, too. If you want to read ahead, you can cheat. It's fine. Can't hurt anything. But do you love God? For God or for what God can do? Is it a transaction? Or is it an invitation to be transformed and healed and made whole? Because this book, from beginning to end, is about bringing you salvation, which is another word for healing, which is another word for wholeness. God wants you to be wholly you, the you he made you to be. Ask those questions of yourself this week, and that'll prepare you for next week. Uh, more Job. More Job.